Okay, if you would please turn to the Acts of the Apostles. Chapter 13, I will be reading Acts chapter 13, verses 4 through 12. Acts 13, 4 through 12. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Paul, or Barnabas and Saul, and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, you will not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible, inspired, inerrant, historical word to our minds and to our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, all of your word, Genesis to Revelation. We thank you for the history of the early church that you had your servant, Luke, a physician, pen. Oh, so may we see the importance and the beauty of what is here and what he is doing, that we would see more clearly this glorious truth, the truth of all truth, of the gospel, of our salvation. Do it in us. Do it for us. Do it unto the glory of your name. Amen. And amen. The Apostle Paul describes every one of us who are Christians as those who were blind. Blinded by Satan. Blinded by our own sinful natures to to see the glory of God in the gospel of Christ. None of us could. But then God in his love and in his mercy made us alive together with Christ. And we see. That was true of Saul of Tarsus. That was true of Barnabas. 
And that is true of you. That's how you became a Christian. And in that is a freedom that the world cannot understand. In that there is a joy that surpasses the joys of this world in the hope of the gospel. But having said that, the New Testament never allows, even though preachers may preach, come to Jesus and everything's going to be smooth sailing now. No. But along with the joy that is central to Christianity, as Paul writes, it is, it is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Yes, it is. And at the same time, Christianity at its core is an enlistment into the army, into a war of combat with the enemy of our souls and the enemy of the souls of lost people out there that we are to reach. And we see in this passage this morning that that battle intensifies when we engage in gospel witness. Barnabas and Saul are called out and sent by the Holy Spirit. The church in Antioch then sees it and sends them. Verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. It's the island there in the Mediterranean. Almost 100 miles long. It's not a small island. They sail to Cyprus. And then within no time, they encounter a battle with spiritual, satanic forces of evil. And in that, there are lessons. There are lessons for us about spiritual conflict in this life as Christians in carrying the gospel of truth to others. And in it, there are lessons on how we are to prepare ourselves for such conflict. But I'm not going to go there this morning. Probably next week. But what I want to do this morning is, is we're making the transition in Luke from all that he's done so far in the early church, particularly the Jerusalem church, now to the ministry of Paul, is to ask this huge question, which is really important, to get a bird's eye view of what Luke now, over the next numbers of chapters, what is Luke up to? What is he doing? He's not merely just as a robot writing. He has a goal. And the answer to the question about what Luke is up to, I find to be extremely important in understanding Christianity. What I mean is, I don't mean like, we can understand the doctrines of Christianity even outside the Bible, because there's a lot of great documents. The Westminster Confession of Faith, the Baptist Confession of Faith, 1689. Uh, we can go on and on. But what I mean is, biblically, from what we have in the New Testament, how did it go from a Jewish thing to almost mainly a Gentile thing? 
for 2,000 years. And what was the circumstances of this? Because it's important because God ordained it be that way. And in that, we get the language of the New Testament in terms like works of the law or faith alone, not just out of the air, but in a context that are to be instructive to all cultures in all times because those same errors coming against the truth raise their heads in different forms. So, here's the big picture of what Luke is doing over the next three chapters. First, here they go to the island of Cyprus. And on this island, Luke only records one conversion. Clearly, other people got saved. Doesn't say anything about it. He just records one conversion on the island of Cyprus. And he gives us the context for it. And he makes it clear, the context for this conversion was there was a Jewish man who opposed what Paul and Barnabas had to preach to the guy he's employed by, the governor of the entire island who is a Gentile. He wants to turn the governor of the island away from hearing the gospel that Paul and Barnabas are bringing. That's what he's doing. Okay, let me just stop for a minute. Because what Luke is really doing here and when you're going to put this together with the rest of the New Testament, it's this. To understand his purpose is to understand why that thing called a New Testament you have, why this particular writing of the history of the early church is there. And it gives you understanding of why there are 13 distinct letters teachings about what Christianity is from a guy named Paul. Never met Jesus in his earthly ministry. Didn't walk with him. He's not one of the twelve. Why are there thirteen letters in your New Testament? You don't, most time we don't think about it now as Christians, it's been for years. You don't have Luke. You're lost. Where'd it come from? So, here he is. First, they go. Only one conversion. Context. A Jewish magician comes against the gospel so that the Gentile governor doesn't hear it. And in the context, despite that, that Gentile, non-Jew, is saved. Then they leave the island, they go to the mainland, and it's going to be up in the region of Galatia, where these different cities are on this first missionary journey. And so they leave the island, and they go straight to the Jews in the synagogue in the city of Antioch of Pisidia. It's a different Antioch. And they preach the gospel to their fellow Jews. Some come to faith. The vast majority... Don't. They reject the message. And then Luke tells us, and he's got a goal here, Paul and Barnabas said to their Jews there, 
we are now turning to the Gentiles. And then the only thing that happened in that city after that is that the Jews got more and more angry and they incited a riot. And eventually Paul and Barnabas had to leave the city. And they go to the next city, Iconium. And the same scenario happens. To the Jews, a few believe, and then they turn to the Gentiles, and many more believe. And then the Jews chase them out of Iconium. And they go to Lystra, where they preach the gospel directly to the Gentiles. And then the Derby, he doesn't give us much information. And then they go back through those cities where they planted the churches. This whole missionary journey is probably taking at least a year, maybe a little bit more than a year. They go back through these cities and appoint elders in all the churches on their way back to the home base church. They sent them out, Antioch of Syria, where they then give a report on what has happened. And Luke summarizes that in chapter 14, verse 27, this way. And when they arrived back in the city of Antioch of Syria, and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how He had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Luke is up to something. And then that, in Luke, in this Acts of the Apostles, that sets the stage for what happens next. The Jerusalem Council in chapter 15 of Acts. Over the contention of what Paul and Barnabas were doing, preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. And the result of that council, Luke tells us, with the other apostles and leaders in the church in Jerusalem was that they approved of what Paul and Barnabas were doing. Preaching Jesus directly to Gentiles and saying they can be saved without becoming Jewish. And they agreed. That's what Luke is up to. So here's Luke. Sitting down to write, it's 62, 63, 64 A.D. As he's writing this, this is 15 to 17 years after this first missionary journey. And what he is doing now for the rest of this book is he is establishing theologically on purpose two crucial facts. And you can just see it when we pay attention to the structure of his narrative. The first fact is this. Luke is making it clear that the gospel of Jesus is to go directly to Gentiles. And they can be saved by faith in Jesus without becoming Jewish. Culturally, without taking to themselves circumcision and kosher diet and all the other Jewish Laws. They can remain Gentiles and be saved. He's driving the point home. And secondly, which is directly connected to that, he is clearly establishing the legitimacy of Paul as an apostle sent directly from Jesus. The apostle 
with the theological goods of the gospel going to non-Jews. So, first, he's making the point. The gospel is to go to non-Jews. And they don't in any way have to come through Judaism to be saved. In other words, even though Luke has already let us know, Peter preached the gospel to Gentiles in Cornelius' house, and then there was contention over that, okay? Ever since that time, up to when he's writing, the Jerusalem church, the Jewish church in Judea as a whole, it retained a tension over this issue of preaching to Gentiles and what that would mean. There is a tension over that for decades. They never organized, created a movement saying, well, I guess when we preach to Gentiles, let's go out into Gentile missions from the Jerusalem, Judean, Jewish church. They never did do that. And Luke lets us know that that mission, that mission was left to the church in Antioch, 300 miles up north. So when Barnabas and Paul begin their mission, they start by witnessing to the Jews in the synagogues throughout the island of Cyprus, which was always Paul's approach. Listen to what he says in a very, very familiar verse, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I, Paul, am not ashamed of the gospel, because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and then also to the Greek, the non-Jew. So we read in verses 5 and 6 of our passage. When they arrived at Salamis, a little port city there on the island, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. That's Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark. So when they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, okay, so stop. There it is, two little verses. What he has just told us, they get there, this first missionary journey, get on the ship, they get to the island, and then he tells us they went to town after town after town to the Jews. In the synagogues, plural, which is about 80 miles from where they started to when they end up on the other side in Paphos. And that's it. He just summarizes it in two verses, then he spends the rest of the narrative on that island with this one conversion. Julius Paulus. He focuses now on the incident of a Jew coming against the gospel and then the Gentile governor of the island Get saved anyway. That's what proconsul is. It means that he was appointed by the Roman Senate as a governor with Roman authority. And this magician, 
witch doctor, spiritism, demonic kind of stuff. He made it, according to Luke, his goal to turn the governor away from the gospel of Jesus. But in spite of it, with the miracle and the preaching, which he was stunned at the teaching, he is converted to Jesus. And I think the New Testament scholar, the commentator Richard Longenecker is absolutely right when he observes that this right here, this incident, the conversion to Jesus of Sergius Paulus, the governor, seems to be the turning point in Paul's whole ministry. Even at that point, Luke now tells us, Paul's name changed. Well, not really. What it did, it changed from the Jewish form, Saul, or in Greek, Saulus, to the Gentile form, Roman form, in Greek, Paulus. And it continues that way now throughout the rest of the book. But the message that Luke is unfolding in the narrative as a whole is that because the Jews rejected the gospel, the remnant always believed, there's always a small number that believe, but as a whole, they not just rejected it, but they opposed it actively and even violently. His point is this. Therefore, Paul was right taking the gospel of salvation in Jesus directly to the Gentiles. And Paul himself would later write these words in Romans 11. And so I ask, did they, that they refers to the Jews, Paul himself is a Jew, to his Jewish brothers and sisters, did they stumble, meaning reject the gospel again and again? Did they stumble in order that they might fall? And that's the purpose. <laughs> His answer is no. By no means. God's got His ways. And He says this is what has happened. But rather, through their trespass in rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ, through their trespass, Salvation has come to the Gentiles. So as to make Israel jealous. And that's what's unfolding here throughout the rest of Acts of the Apostles. Luke's first point then is Paul was right in bringing the gospel directly to Gentiles apart from Judaism. In other words, apart from all the entailments of practicing cultural Judaism. No, you do not have to do that. And then secondly, his goal is to establish the credibility of Paul as a true apostle. Throughout Paul's life now, the rest of his life, throughout his entire ministry until his death, he faced constant missiles from his critics. Particularly many professing Jewish Christians. That group whom we have dubbed 
in church history as Judaizers. They're not total unbelieving Jews. I don't want nothing to do. I don't believe in this Jesus. No, no, no. We believe in the cross, in the resurrection. That group hated that Paul preached directly to Gentiles and told them they can be saved by faith in Jesus without ever becoming Jewish. And they made it their mission to undo everything he was doing. And so what would happen in what, as we are entering this first missionary journey to these cities of Lystra and Iconium and Derbe and Antioch of Pisidia, etc., once Paul and Barnabas leave and they do that, and they're going to go back home to Antioch. Many from that group coming up from Jerusalem and Judea are up there in those cities. And they're going into the churches and they're saying, yes, that's great. You believe in Jesus. And, and Paul was here and Barnabas was here. And, and they were absolutely correct that Jesus is the son of David. And he is the Messiah that we waited for. And he died on the cross for our sins. And God raised him from the dead. And we had the testimony of the, the apostles, the 12 apostles, and many others testified to this. He got all that right. But, you know, okay, you know, Paul, he, he became a Christian kind of later on. And he didn't quite tell you everything you need to know. So, so we're here to set the record straight. So yes, you have to believe in Jesus. You have to have faith. But he failed to tell you that you must add to that now, becoming Jewish. You, you men, you need to be ceremonially circumcised. And, and all your diets need to change. Look at Leviticus and you practice, practice kosher. And every week you need to practice the way we practice the Sabbath. And you need to practice festivals, etc. But see, I mean, after all, it's okay. I mean, Paul's a good guy, you know, but he's not an apostle. Okay? He, he came to faith a little bit later on. Remember, he's a persecutor of the church. And, and, and what he did, he sat under the tutelage of the apostles in Jerusalem and Judea. And, okay, he got his gospel. And he went off to tell you, but he got a little, couple of the things messed up a little bit. And so we're here to set it straight. And that's what they're doing immediately after this first missionary journey. And for the rest of Paul's life. But here's the key. Paul's not one of the 12 apostles. So he made an error. We're, just, we're representing the apostles of Jerusalem. Peter and James and John. That's what they're saying. See, if they can discredit Paul as a genuine apostle sent directly from the resurrected Lord Jesus, as the twelve were, if, if they can discredit Paul as that unique first century kind of an apostle with the same authority as Peter, well then their twist on the gospel, which Paul himself called no gospel at all, it would succeed. It would succeed in infiltrating the Gentile churches after church after church after church that Paul would go and plant. And thus, the false 
doctrine would succeed, would succeed which says you can be saved by Jesus. How? By coming to faith. Believe in Him. And add to it works of the law. The result will be you will be saved. Sounds so close. And it obliterates the grace of God. And because of this problem of Paul's in his apostleship, being constantly undermined, which they need to do, connected with the doctrine they want to undo of Paul's. Just for a moment, I'm going to turn from Luke and go to Paul. Paul makes this defense. I won't even go to 2 Corinthians, but read it. Why is he saying he has to defend himself for the sake of the souls of the, the church? But here's how he defends it in Galatians about his own apostleship. For I would have... You know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. Okay, stop. Why does he say that? Because that's what they're saying. Paul, you know, he's Johnny come lately and he learned it under the tutelage of the others and messed it up a little bit. He says it's not man's gospel. Gospel, and he explains, for I did not receive the gospel from any man, nor was I taught it by any men, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And Luke makes that point clear. It's called Damascus Road. And where Jesus on the Damascus road told Paul, I will continue to appear to you. God revealing his son in his resurrection and encountering Paul. He says, that's where I got my gospel. And he goes on. When he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, when he was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. Watch Paul here. Here's his defense against what they're testifying about Paul. When that happened on Damascus Road, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before I was an apostle? They're lying to you. Now he keeps the record straight. He says, after three years of Damascus Road, he says, I did go to Jerusalem for two weeks. And I met Peter, and I met Jesus' brother, and that was it, and I left. But then he says, I went up 14 years after my conversion to Jerusalem again. And yes, it was in order to have deep discussions with the apostles. And he says this, when I went up there, Peter and James, Jesus' brother, and John, the apostle John, he says to them, quote, they added nothing 
to me in my gospel. But instead he says, Peter, James, and John, who seemed to be pillars, when they perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me so that we should go to the Gentiles with our gospel and they to the Jews. Okay, that, that's Paul himself. That's what he had to deal with throughout his ministry. Attacks on his gospel and on his genuine, true authority and apostleship. And so now we go back to Luke. Here he is. It's in the early 60s to mid-60s of the first century. And Luke finds it important to write the history of the early church and to establish Paul's credibility as a true apostle, a revelatory spokesperson on par with Peter and John and Jeremiah and Moses. And he does this in the narrative in several ways that are to come in the chapters to just give you a taste. The way he has started, he's made it very clear. Paul was called and sent out by the Holy Spirit with the full backing of the church in Antioch. Remember verse 2? The Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And so, being sent out by the Holy Spirit. Luke knows what he's doing. And then secondly, he shows us very clearly, Paul performed the signs of a true apostle sent directly from Jesus. Miracles, wonders. Starts right here in this passage this morning by the blinding, striking blind Elemas, the magician. And he shows it in the context of the Jew turning a Gentile away from the gospel. Signs, what do I say? Paul declared this in 2 Corinthians 12, 12. Again, where he's very defensive, has to be for the sake of the believers who are being deceived. He says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, and here's the signs, with signs and wonders and mighty works. And he starts to show this through the rest of Acts. Third, Luke gives us the content of how Paul preached. We'll see some of his sermons in these chapters to come. And you look at that and you look what Peter preached. They're identical. They're not in contradiction to one another. And fourth, he lays out a number of striking parallels. Remember, essentially the first half of the book is the, really the Acts of the Apostle Peter. Second, the acts of the Apostle Paul and the similarities there are striking between their ministries. Peter, he goes and confronts 
Simon the sorcerer. Here, Paul confronts Elymas, the sorcerer. Luke tells us back in chapter 5 that with Peter, John, and their preaching, the high priest and the Jewish leadership were filled with jealousy. Here in chapter 14, in Paul's ministry, it says this in verse 45 of chapter 13, I mean, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Just as Peter healed a man who was born crippled from birth, so Paul heals a man who was born crippled from birth. Just as Peter's shadow fell and touched people, they were healed. So back in chapter 19, or up in chapter 19, he will show, they laid aprons and handkerchiefs on Paul, then took them to the sick, and they were healed. Luke is very purposeful. Okay. Not on creating history, making sure what actually happened and how he structures his narrative. And thus, finally, at this juncture, Luke shows the credentials of Paul from this shift of Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul to Paul and Barnabas, and then Paul and his companions throughout. So, Luke's purpose is twofold in the narrative that now is beginning to unfold. It is to establish the credibility of Paul as a genuine apostle and thus connected directly to it the validity of the gospel he preaches directly to non-Jews. That's the bird's eye view. In the early church, literally 30 to 35 years in, it was crucial in Luke's mind by the Holy Spirit, crucial to show in his narrative that Paul is valid, his gospel is valid. Why? Because for your sakes, that the gospel, not a gospel, but the gospel of justification by faith alone will stand. The threat during the first century, during Paul's ministry, and through every century since up till the 21st century, the threat to the church is always moving away from the foundational question. What is the gospel? And how can sinners be saved by Jesus? Many preachers went out in Paul's day. They were his enemy. Many preachers go out into the world over the centuries. And we develop, by definition, nothing wrong with it, into organized things, even bigger things, structures. 
Doctrines get set. But Jesus' personally sent apostle to the Gentiles might respond in any age, including ours, to any organizations or preachers who say, here's their message. I'm preaching to you the love of Jesus Christ. You can be saved by Jesus. How? By having faith in Him. And adding to that your works of the law. Paul might say to people who preach like that, this. Paul, an apostle. No, don't misinterpret me in when I say apostle. An apostle. Not from men. Nor through the, the, any agency of man. But an apostle through Jesus Christ. And God the Father who raised him from the dead. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting God who called you in the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and they want to tweak Twist the gospel of Christ. But I say to you, even if we, Barnabas, I, Peter, John, I, Paul, if I, or an angel sent from heaven itself, were to come to you and preach to you a gospel of Jesus, that is in any way contrary to the one we have already preached to you, may they be eternally damned. And in the first century, when this Jewish legalism, and legalism since then has crept up in all kinds of other ways without the modifier Jewish, I just will say it. I was raised Roman Catholic. It is embedded in the doctrine of the Roman Church. It is what the Reformation at its core was about. It was the same error as the Judaizers in different forms. Faith plus works. Together equal salvation. When this kind of legalism started to creep in, not in teaching here, but it started to creep into the church in Antioch of Syria that sent them out. It crept in. Let me just say something. I'm going to make it clear. Peter never disagreed with Paul on the issue. And it wasn't the issue that happened in Antioch 
when Paul was away for a while and he comes back. Because what Peter was doing, what Barnabas was doing, and what all the other Jewish Christians were doing was freely, oh yeah, we're going to go to you know Titus's house. A Gentile, our Gentile brother in the Lord. That's great. What are we having? Bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwiches. No problem. They had no problem eating them. And that's what is going on. That was the mercy and the grace God was doing with the gospel. Bringing Jews and Gentiles together in Jesus, one body. But then what happened is some of these guys within the church in Jerusalem come up. Claiming authority from James. And they know their doctrine. They're not pleased with that. And once they started showing up at the meetings and stuff, even Peter feared. I don't want the stuff to hit the fan when I get back home. Barnabas even caved. And they started to play the hypocrite. They started to, 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 to act like what we were doing. No, we weren't really doing that. And so they would be as kind as they could, you know. You know and Mrs. Titus says, hey, Peter, it's been a month. Would you come over and eat? Uh... I already, I'm already pre-engaged. And it, and it would go on for, for weeks on end or however this would happen. And the Gentile Christians start to notice our Jewish brothers, sisters, they're not like coming to our homes anymore or inviting us to theirs. And that starts to have an impact. Paul shows back up in Antioch and he sees it. And so he says, this is just floating around in the air. And he makes it a public issue. So he says publicly in front of the whole church, Jew and Gentile, wherever they gathered, Peter, includes you too, Barnabas, and all you rest of you Jewish Christians, as your Gentile brothers are here, here's his address to them. We ourselves are Jews by birth, and we're not Gentile sinners, yes? Yet think about it, guys. We... And you know this, Peter. You got the gospel right, and I got it right. So let's practice this. What are you going to say? Yeah, we know that a person is not justified or saved by works of the law. What we eat, what we don't eat, Jewish cultural law. We know anything that we do is not the cause of salvation, but only we are saved or justified through faith. In Jesus Christ. And so, Peter, you and I, we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law no one will be saved or justified. This is all connected to what Luke is doing. And it doesn't get more important than that. Every one of us in this room has been born as a sinner and in need of forgiveness from God. And the good news of the gospel is that God gave his one and only eternal son to become a human being in order to fulfill all righteousness as a man in order that he may succeed in perfect obedience 
to God where Adam failed. Then on the cross, after all righteousness on our behalf was fulfilled, on the cross God satisfied his holy justice against us sinners by pouring out his holy wrath upon Jesus. Thus Jesus declared from the cross, it is finished. His work. No one else's. And then you preach it. And there's only one way into that salvation. And it is not, hear me in this room, it is not by your works of anything. The only way in is by believing. Believing that. Believing in Christ Jesus alone. By trusting only in this gospel and never now nor decades down the road never adding to that doorway into salvation called faith works of the law ever the jailer about ready to kill himself in philippi cries out in the middle of the night what must i do to be saved and paul Silas answer. Believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus. And you will be saved. We come empty handed with nothing to offer. Nothing that we can ever do. Ever causes us to deserve such love. Such forgiveness. Such mercy, such promised eternal joy, we have now and forever no righteousness of our own. But we who believe only covet and seek to be clothed with the righteousness of another. His righteousness. His perfect obedience is the only righteousness I want to look to. And it is that righteousness for all who believe that has already been put to their account. That's what the Apostle Paul means when he says in Romans 3, but now, the righteousness, not of you, the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from law. Apart from any of your law doing. It is the righteousness of God that comes to us through Faith in Jesus Christ. For all who believe, Jew or Gentile, 
And then Paul unpacks that saying, we are justified, we are saved by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Where God was propitiated. His anger against us sinners was satisfied in the blood sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. And then he tacks on these words. There it is. There's the gospel. I want that. How do I get it? Quote, to be received by faith. Plus, nothing else ever. And this is why Jesus' apostle who he gave to the world and he also gave through him the clearest understanding of salvation by faith alone why he declared to Gentile Christians who were beginning to actually entertain this false twist on the gospel maybe I should add something to my faith in order to make sure I get saved in the end he said this to them for freedom Christ has set us free so stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you, if you accept circumcision, there's one example of a work of the law, if you accept circumcision as they're trying to get you to do, Christ will be of no advantage to you. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified or saved by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For Paul says, don't you see, dear believer, we, through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. You see, because in Christ Jesus, Neither circumcision nor, nor non-circumcision doesn't count for anything. But the only thing that matters is faith, which works itself out in loving others. And that's why Paul, throughout his life, he fought tooth and nail in order to not give in or compromise in any way on the core of the gospel that Jesus gave to him. And that is why Luke is constructing his narrative the way he is. Paul writes 
to the dear believers in those Galatian churches, and he writes to us today in this room these words. Yet it was because of, while I was in Jerusalem trying to have a meeting with those who really mattered, it was because of the false Christians who were secretly brought in, who slipped in in order to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment. Why? He tells us why. And I hope you feel it. We did not submit to them, not even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So it's simple. Dear believer, the application is not simplistic, but it's simple. No the gospel. Know the gospel better than you know your own name. It is your life. It is your comfort. It is your power. It is your eternal life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. We, the church here, thanks you. The church universal throughout the centuries, thank you for the New Testament, what you have given to us. From Paul's letters to his friend Luke constructing the history of the early church, your ways are wonderful. And we thank you because we know, according to you, it could have been no other way than that you would have had Paul stand so that the truth, not twist on a gospel, but the truth of the gospel would be preserved and continued to be preached. So many of us in here have heard and, and then saw it and see it love it. You are good. We thank you for such a great salvation through your one and only Son. By grace alone, through Jesus alone, by the means of our trust in Him alone. Amen.